Welcome to Managing Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, as always, and I've got our good friend Eric Berger of Ars Technica back with us today to talk about Artemis and Starship winning the lander contract and Amazon flying on nine Atlas Vs. And then we get into uh, a little bit of the state of Blue Origin. It's a really great conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. Uh, and But before we do that, I want to say thank you to everyone out there. There are 587 of you supporting the show every single month. That is an amazing number. So thankful for your support. And this episode was produced by 40 executive producers. Thanks to Brandon, Matthew, Simon, Lauren, Melissa, Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Ryan, Donald, Lee, Chris, Warren, Bob, Russell, Moritz, Joel, Jan, Grant, David, Eunice, Rob, Tim Dodd, the Everdash astronaut. Frank, Julian and Lars from Agile Space, Tommy, Matt, the Astrogators at SEE, Chris, Aegis Trade Law, and seven anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for your support for making this show possible. If you want to join that crew, head over to managingcutoff.com slash support and join up there. If you are at the $3 a month or more level, you get an episode of Miko Headlines in your feed every single week. It's an entire other podcast where I keep you up to date on all the space news. It's a really great way to stay up to date to help support the show and uh, keep things like this happening. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Eric. Eric, welcome back to the show for the, I don't know, fourth time? Third time? Yeah, something like that. Uh, it's been a yeah, while. Thanks very much. I, I realized that we were planning on doing a show the week my son was born, and I was like, oh, we'll talk next week. And then he was born like the next night. And I was like, oh, sorry, Eric. Uh, we are not going to talk. So Yeah, life has a way of um, establishing your priorities, especially when it comes to kids, <laughs> so I completely understand. Well, we definitely have a long list of things to get into. Uh, we were talking earlier this week, and I was like, oh, wow, we've got stuff to unpack together. So I figured we'd start on Artemis and Starship and HLS stuff generally. Uh, I went at length on the show this week, so I'm going to let you start because I don't really know where you'd like to dig in on this decision first. I mean, I think it's just the most shocking thing to me is that NASA clearly embraced Starship with all of its risks. Um, and let's be clear, I mean, their design was certainly the most technically demanding. Um, I mean, you know, orbital refueling is a huge one. Um, and And it just... It seems to me like NASA has decided, or at least some officials at NASA have decided that this is the way, right? And the Mandalorian speak. Um, you know, I remember talking to to Bridenstine about this stuff because we would have conversations, you know, off the, off the record about how the fact that, look, I mean, if Starship works, SLS is 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 not long for this world. Um, and he he freely he would freely admit that you know, one day probably. SpaceX is going to be launching astronauts to the moon and back. Um, and this clearly is a step in that direction. And it's, it's surprising to me because, okay, on one hand, NASA did take really the only option they had with the funding available. They really only had money for one project and they had, there was one, clearly one bid that was much lower than the other bids, although the numbers aren't in the, um, the NASA documents. But even so, going to Congress and saying, uh, yeah, we're going to give SpaceX all of the lunar lander money and bet the farm on them. No, by the way, this also just happens to fund an architecture that directly competes with your big rocket and spacecraft that you spent you know, 
$30 billion over the last decade developing. Um, sorry. I, I mean, it's, 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 truly, it's truly a bold play by NASA. I'm, I was super impressed. The, I want to pick apart the first thing you said, that Starship is the complex architecture. Uh, none of these lander options were like not complex. They were all, the Dynetics one, as much fan fiction as it was, apparently they couldn't fit it yeah. in the mass margins. That had refueling with drop tanks and all this stuff. The Blue Origin team was going to put three parts together in the first time that they've ever met is in space, launching on who knows what rockets. Mm. The So the Starship, you know, as far as what happens in space is just as complex as those. It's the fact that it relies on um, returning to Earth, uh, several tankers, launching several tankers in quick succession, having enough methane and liquid oxygen to do that. Like that's a thing that they have to figure out is how to get enough fuel to do this. So that side of the thing is definitely more complex, but the in-space operations part um, is kind of equal among them. And I guess by complex, I really mean that, you know, Starship, first of all, do you know how tall the lunar the lunar module was? I think I read your article this morning, so it was seven meters, and I would not have remembered seven that meters. off the top of my I would have said, well, I've stood next to it at air and space, and it was pretty tall, but... <laughs> seven meters. Starship is 50 meters. Um, and so that's not quite an order of magnitude, but it's, it's much, pretty much, much It pretty much is. And, and so the scope of what SpaceX is trying to do, and I think really, you know, in pushing for that vehicle to be fully reusable, they are absolutely pushing all the margins on all the systems um, to squeeze that vehicle um, and, and make it fully reusable. And so from that standpoint, it is just utterly non-conventional to try to make a fully reusable, you know, it's a fully reusable orbital launch system and it's also a moon lander. <laughs> so I, I just think from that standpoint, it's, it's biting off a lot. And the fact that NASA was willing to take on that risk um, and, and you're right. I, I do agree with you. I, I was going to write an article and I just ran out of time before the awards were announced it, with the basic conclusion that NASA had had no easy choice here because um, the national team's lander was you know, integrating three parts and Blue Origin had no experience whatsoever leading a big team like that. Um, and, so, and there were some real management issues, I think, with that project. Um, and then Dynetics, again, had, had no experience playing in this domain of human spaceflight. And their lander was pretty complex and it was ambitious. It was interesting. Um, and SpaceX, obviously, was trying to land a 50-meter tall spacecraft on the surface of the moon um, and had some big crane to put astronauts on the surface. So it, they, they did not have a, a straightforward choice. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, a year ago, I would have said that the national team had a pretty straightforward option. It's just they did not seem to execute particularly well. Um, during the during the last year, yeah, I mean that's all we were talking about at IAC when they announced it was like, well, they just they just you know checkmate to everyone else. They've done like the Voltron of new and old space and lots of money to throw behind it. And so I, I think they were definitely surprised. Um, I talked to someone who told me that they had this big Zoom call with um, all of the employees who are working on the HLS program at Lockheed Martin. Um, this past week, and basically they were gobsmacked and and just sort of shocked that they hadn't they hadn't won this award. But I, I had a pretty good source telling me for a while now that that you know he felt that 
that NASA was pretty uncomfortable with Blue Origin leading the team. Um, the the contract, the, the other partners aside from Blue Origin, Lockheed Northrop and Draper kind of felt somewhat marginalized by Blue Origin. And it, it just seemed like there were going to be issues um, during that development problem. And that at some point, um, this person thought that that Lockheed would have been been sort of stepped up and become the program leader for that. It makes sense, but also you read the source selection document and a lot of the like technical issues that were called out um, were things that were with the ascent stage. It was either ascent engines, which more or less is their problem, but then communications was the one that I was like, what? The-? It, so much of the ascent portion of that vehicle was, well, this is Orion, but in an ascent version. And then to have five out of six communication links called out as like a weakness, a significant weakness and things that might not actually work in reality is pretty, it's almost like the SLS, this is heritage, but it's all new and it's what yeah. we've done before, but we have to test it all again. And, it, and that was the storyline with Orion, but that didn't pan out that way. That was kind of one of the weird things too, because what's the most difficult part of the lunar lander? It's not really the descent stage, it's the ascent stage. And Blue Origin was doing the descent stage, and and Lockheed was doing the ascent stage, and but they weren't, you know, the, they weren't integrating the whole thing. Um, so uh, again, you know, just just kind of in retrospect, um, a weird a weird thing when, as you know, a year ago it looked like the odds on bang on favorite. Now you said NASA took their only option in terms of funding. That is assuming that they didn't do the NASA thing, which they always do, which is. All right, we didn't get all the money. We're going to punt a couple of years, do some design contracts. That's a thing that is like crazy to me because that's the most NASA decision ever. Is we'll stretch it out. We'll give everyone another year. We'll split the eight hundred fifty million three ways, and then see who comes out on the other side. So that's a that's a great. Do you have point. a sense of who drew, um, drove that? Like, nope, we're going all in on this thing. I take I take your I take your point very well on that. Um, do I have a sense of who ultimately drove the decision? Um, I, I think I would give a lot of the credit to Kathy Leaders, who um, has had a front row seat for the evolution of commercial space over the last decade. She's dealt with a lot of these companies um, in the commercial crew program, um, and she's she's seen who is executed and who is not. But you're right; the easiest thing would have been, especially with an acting administrator, you know. Four months into the three months, three months into the presidency of, of, of Joe Biden, would have been okay. Twenty twenty four isn't possible. Um, we're going to take some more time to try to refine our plans and, and get buy in from Congress and sort of get everyone on board. Instead, they sort of rushed ahead, and I, I don't entirely know what drove that decision. I think it's possible they wanted to get it done before the nomination hearing of, of Bill Nelson. Um, but I don't know that for a fact. The the leader's aspect is like, you know, you can't avoid that, right? Her name's on the paperwork. Her name's been on the paperwork for SpaceX's crew program for the last couple of years. It's on this paperwork. Um, it's interesting to think if Gerst had not been forced out a year or two, however many years ago was that? Two, three years ago? I was in Paris. It was July, so almost two years ago. Interesting to think about what the future would have unfolded like if uh, he had still been around, but then he's on the other side of the table now. He's over at SpaceX. So I think Gerst was more pro SpaceX than he gets credit for. 
Um, I didn't mean that as an anti thing, but he's, he yeah, seems no, I, much I less bold than this decision. Would he, been, would he have been this bold? I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. It was, I think it, it comes to from a recognition, I think, from the, the incoming administration and people who are sort of guiding the thinking of the politicos um, at, at the White House and at NASA that sort of say, look, what we've done over the last decade in terms of SLS and Orion has not been working. And while we're saddled with those programs, um, we really need to try something new. And this was clearly a push to try something new. Um, because you're right, you could have been stuck in paralysis by analysis for another year, year and a half, waiting for the next budget. Um, and and we all would have been like, okay, well, you know, they, they they did what they had to do, but instead, you know, they they've made this really bold decision, and it's going to make space policy fascinating um, for the next while. But I will tell you what I I had a thought this morning is I was watching the the press conference with um, with Elon Musk and and Steve Jerzyk, and as, as Musk was talking about 2024 being doable, it's interesting to me that. On that goal now, he and Congress and NASA administration are all aligned. Like, on how many things have, have Elon Musk and the US Congress, when it comes to human spaceflight, been aligned in the last decade? The answer is about zero. Um, so, so, the idea that now, you know, the juxtaposition of this congressional hearing for Nelson on Wednesday, where you had senators left and right saying, well, we're going to hold you to 2024 um, because that's an important date. And so, and, and then you, three days later, you've got Elon saying, "Yeah, I think we can do 2024. Sure, let's. I mean, let's let's do it faster." Um, so that I think that's another sort of spicy dimension in this space <laughs> politics because, like, you've got Nat, Congress saying they want to get there by 2024, NASA administration clearly making the decision that the only chance we'd have at 2024 is if we want this company that moves as fast as possible, and Elon Musk saying, "Yeah, let's do it." So pretty interesting, I think. I, hey, man, I said six months ago that everyone was given 2024 flack for being politically motivated deadline. And I said, yep, sure is. But now guess what? It could be a politically motivated deadline for someone else. The year's the same year. This election's the same election. Doesn't matter who gets to take credit for what. If 2024 is the date and you think it's important for an election, now it's important for election again. And like that, that whole storyline didn't seemed to make sense that, oh, 2024 would get thrown out because that was a Trump thing and we're not Trump, so we're going to move the date for... It's like, well, not not if you can get a landing well, under your under your name. S- Steve Jersick basically did throw it out. Like That's true. Uh, he did. Well, it's kind of soft-pedaled back, back it, in right? Fe- back in February, I had an interview with him and like I said, I said, come on, Steve, you're not going to do 20... You can't do 2024. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, we're reevaluating. We didn't get the funding we needed. And then like... About 30 minutes after that interview, I got sort of a frantic email from the press secretary saying, we'd like to give you a better quote. Um, and, and the quote was basically like, you know. Gateway you know, saying, sucks, for, landing rules. For the first, <laughs> no. <laughs> for the first time, they were basically admitting that 2024 was not really possible. But now they're back to, you know, in response to Congress saying, well, we're going to give it a shot. And and again, that's sort of like that alignment of Congress and NASA administration and SpaceX might be enough to sort of not overthrow the award that NASA just gave SpaceX. I mean, it might sort of 
I don't know what's going to happen in Congress with this HLS stuff because clearly they're pissed off. Um, you know, you've got uh, um, the senator from Washington. Can't she well. was representing Blue. Huh? Cantwell. Yeah, Cantwell yeah. was representing Blue Origins Interests. You've got the House representative from Texas, um, Eddie Bernice Johnson, who is actively working against SpaceX for some reason um, in her Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that as a, as a native Texan yourself. What is going she, on there? She, well, if you look at her political donations for you know for a long time, she's gotten money from Lockheed. She's from the Dallas Fort Worth okay. area. They've got a big facility. Yeah, that's there. where they make the F thirty fives, right? Yeah, so I mean, I think she's clearly got some Lockheed support, and and they're no fans of, of SpaceX. And now Lockheed, of course, has not just Orion, but an interest in the engines in uh, in SLS. So, so yeah, that the Congress dimension, I'm very unsure about because it is a new Congress. There are different people in charge of different committees. But also, I don't know, the, the failure scenario, if Congress hates this decision, is that they don't fund the lander. And that's where we were 10 minutes before this award. They didn't fund the lander. So what is the, what is the failure scenario now that NASA has went all in with Starship? Well, I was thinking about that. I mean, let's be honest, $2.9 billion over four years is like, what, seven hundred. Seven hundred and fifty million a year. Yeah, you probably got to bump it up a little for NASA overhead. I mean, if you're given, yeah, if you're given, okay, you you could SpaceX can do the lander for that money. This is not like this is not the Lockheed lander, which is twenty billion dollars, yeah. right? SpaceX has already put in. I don't know. I would guess what? What do you think they've self invested in Starship? Five billion, something like that. I mean, I, don't know if it's that I, high, I think but it's it's, it's got to be on it. It's it's a lot. Um, the, the, you know, the, the hiring that they've done in South Texas is pretty remarkable. And, and they're just, they're, the money is, is no longer an option for SpaceX, which is really interesting to see them move at that, at that velocity. But, but anyway, they don't need $20 billion for human landing system, right? They, they, they just put it down. They said, we need three. And now they need money for spacesuits. Um, and, but, but what's, Congress could provide zero funding, I guess, for a human landing system, but I don't think I don't think the Democrats are going to do that to the Biden administration, are they? I mean, I don't think so. And my recommendation to SpaceX would be get an Amtrak logo on Starship as soon as you can, and then yeah. just just dial it up. Amtrak Joe going to the moon, baby. <laughs> We're building Amtrak to the moon. That's my proposal. Not bad. I mean, it is it is building the railroads to space. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I like that. Um, so you know, I, it's an interesting play because, it, like like we said, NASA does all of a sudden does not need that much more money because SpaceX is going to be investing in Starship. Um, and so their their move was interesting. They're going to placate, you know, Congress with with this. And, and Nelson talked about this too. But but you know. They're going to have this follow-on competition for recurring missions, and my guess is that they'll sort of throw some money, you know, into that pot for these other ideas. The problem is, if you give Blue Origin, Lockheed, or Dynetics, you know, three hundred million or five hundred million a year to continue studying, they're not going to be doing much of anything. Um, I mean, I know for a fact the employees at Lockheed already had the expectation. That if they were working on HLS, they're not anymore, right? I mean that 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 that, and I know someone else who was given a stop work order 
who is doing work on Dynetics Lander. So the fanciful notion that, that these companies, Jeff Bezos was going to self-fund his lander, no way. I don't even think they self-funded the base period 10-month grant. Um, yeah, the, the heard, contribution I, part is not good look. I heard, I heard their contribution was zero during that. I can't substantiate that. I don't want to get sued. But I mean, my understanding is that their self-contribution levels for that was low. Dynetics was the same thing. I was talking to the program manager for Dynetics. And I said, you know, if you don't get a grant for the second phase, would you continue funding, you know, the lander and he sort of, it was sort of hemmed and hawed. Um, so it's going, I mean, so Starship is going to continue roaring ahead and this NASA funding will only sort of embolden that effort, I think. And, and imagine like if SpaceX needs to fundraise now, you've got NASA backing the lander. I mean, come on. I mean, that, that, that money is not a problem for them at all. Um, and so, you know, you get to this recurring missions competition. I'm not sure what they're calling it. And specifically at NASA, but you know they're going. To, but if they throw a few hundred million at the other guys, it's they're just not going to be going anywhere. You know, it's just so. I mean, how how do those companies ultimately win operational missions to the lunar surface? Yeah, it's not clear it. to me. Like it's it's glorified clips at that point, right? With the payload as humans instead of small science payloads. Are, I don't know. Clips is actually flying missions. Well, I, I don't see these guys. I mean, it, NASA at some point would have to step up and provide. What ten billion dollars at least to both the other bids to make to make landers? Honestly, it could um, be a thing that. So the the way I read the source selection document is like, what do they say about each competitor that they leave out of the other ones? You know, because there's some statements that they call out as specific notes. SpaceX mm. was called out specifically as providing more than half the funding for yeah. Starship. Blue Origin's contribution was not even mentioned, and that's the part that I'm like, man. That's not a lot of money that they're putting into this lander on their own dime. So saying we'll do this other competition might be like, we'll give you a couple hundred million, but if you're not putting in any of your own, then sorry, we can't do that. You know, and, and on the other hand, they just instantly doubled their budget with SpaceX that they could get from Congress because whatever Congress wants to give us, SpaceX is going to put that in as well. So that that matters a lot. And if they're trying to force the hand of Congress to give them more money for the lander, that's cool. If they're trying to force the hand of these other competitors to say, you weren't putting enough in, and the next round you're going to need to, because that's the way that we're architecting this agreement, I, I wonder how much of a factor that is. And I wonder if the other competitors play ball with this recurring missions round, or if they just say, protest and say, look, we're taking our ball and going home until Congress fixes this. Which is what um, SpaceX did with the Space Force, right? Well, we didn't get a dev contract. We'll just keep flying our vehicles, and then we'll charge you triple the amount in our first win of the next round so that we can build yeah. our vertical integration for Falcon Heavy, and we can build our big payload fairing. It's going to, it's going to be fascinating um, to see what happens, because Congress, you know, the staffers on Congress are not stupid. They realize that this is one step toward an all-SpaceX moon program, which is not good for anyone but SpaceX and you know, arguably NASA. Um, and and fans who just and, and who people who just want to see them let's go back to the moon. I mean, let's be honest. You know, betting on SpaceX is probably the smart bet. But where where is the political support for Artemis at that point? You lose all of your industry in the United States. You lose your international partners who are already sort of you know having to talk nice about SpaceX because Thomas Pesquet is launching on there and the Japanese astronauts are launching on on Falcon Nine. But I mean, they're not particularly happy about that. Um, supporting a competitor. So, uh, you know, I it just, 
it, politically, it's very it's going to be very interesting to see how NASA finesses this, um, and and that's why honestly it was it was really nice to see Bill Nelson um, when he was able to to put his head up from because he was getting all these softballs thrown at him. You know, it was really a really a murderer's row of questions <laughs> at uh, the Senate Commerce Committee hearing. But but seriously, um, you know, they were he was pressed a little bit on this single selection of SpaceX for the lander. And his response was basically to uphold Kathy Leader's, you know, decision. Um, he said, he said, you know, they selected one for now, but he sort of went back to this party line of we're going to open up the competition down the line. But realistically, you know, without government funding and a lot of it, there is no competition. I did like how he would use his moment to do some revisionism and say, well, Hey, my name were on the bills that funded Commercial Crew and severely underfunded them. I will leave that part out, but you know it's great yeah, what we did was, ten years ago, and now look at us. It was it was on one hand it was difficult to watch the revisionist history from Kay Bailey Hutchison, who introduced him, and Bill Nelson, they, who were literally the architects of the space launch system rocket. Yeah, like, I called them too, and Shelby the holy triumvirate of SLS. But but even those two did it before Shelby got involved. Um, they were the they were the true progenitors of that deal. So yeah, to sit there and take, but hey, but hey, you know, if if he wants to take credit for commercial space, and if that means he's going to support, you know, a, a fast track SpaceX lander trying to do twenty twenty four, whatever. That's the game. You know, you're a politician. That's the game. Go for it. Um, do you want to talk about this Atlas Five thing? Yes. Okay. Can let's I do it. tell you a quick anecdote? Uh, so I do this headlines show every week for people that are paying on Patreon. And I recorded an episode Sunday night in which I talked about the Lockheed Martin and ABL space deal where they they uh, block bought like all these ABL yeah. launches. And in the headline show, I had a quote that I said, I don't think the best salesperson in the world could sell an Atlas V commercially today. And then like <laughs> 10 hours later, I talked to you and, and then I saw the news come out. And I was like, well, there goes that statement. So uh, Amazon bought nine Atlas Vs, which is crazy for a variety of reasons that I would like to unpack. Yes, let's do it. So the, first of all, why didn't they bowl on New? Why didn't they go on New Glenn? I think we, we you and I both agree that New Glenn is just not going to be ready, um, and certainly not at an operational cadence. If if so, so the, the bottom line here is, is Amazon has to get about fifteen hundred satellites into low Earth orbit by July of 2026 to meet its obligations to the FCC. We don't know how big they are or how many they're going to be able to fit on Atlas. But let's just assume it's 60, it's like Starlink, because OneWeb is 36. Um, so, I mean, 60 is probably, a would you agree, a reasonably good I would, guess? I would just be like conservative and say like 40-something. Just because well, 60 is pretty intense. The flat pack thing can, seems like something that's hard to match, yeah. but, you know. I mean, so so that's to get... 1500 of those in, up there is what is like 30 launches yep. 25 to uh, uh, 20 to 40 launches i mean it's a lot of launches um and so new glenn is not going to approach that kind of cadence i mean i think they'll be lucky to launch in 2023 and maybe maybe they'll land one in 2024 i, I don't know i mean it's 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 really hard what they're trying to do i appreciate i applaud their ambitions but it's difficult well and the high Why end of new glenn as stated so far is like 12 launches a year yeah. So yeah, and 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 how long is it going to take to get to that? Because the SpaceX for its Falcon Nine first in 2010, and they finally reached sort of an operational tempo in 2016, right? Yeah, 
And they actually had experience with orbital rockets <laughs> before the Falcon 9. Falcon 9. Um, so why not Vulcan? And I think the answer to that for me is that, again, Vulcan is not going to have a super high operational cadence. And they're already sold the bulk of their um, availability to the military um, in that time yeah. frame. And so, for a lot so more they, than Amazon would pay. Just right, talking right. the hard facts, right? You could sell a launch in the national security launch program for a lot more than, you know, commercial launch. Yes. So, so what does that leave in the domestic market? That leaves the Falcon 9, ha, 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 and, and uh, the Atlas V. And I think those are good enough reasons. But, but someone else told me another reason was that this probably was um, Bezos sort of, you know, rubbing the back, so to speak, of, of ULA after problems with the BE4 engine. So they, they're late on that. It's going to cause, um, sorry to say it, but the first Vulcan launch is not going to happen this year, despite what Tori Bruno is saying on Twitter. It's going to slip into 2022. And if I'm wrong about that, I'll come on and you know, I'll eat a hat for you. <laughs> um, because I, I don't, I'm not sure the rocket will be ready, and I'm convinced the astrobotic payload is not going to be ready. Oh, so I'm convinced of that part as well. One or both of yeah. those is going to miss. Um, but but anyway, I mean, one of the limiting factors, certainly for Vulcan, the limiting factor has been the BE-4 engine. We'll see if they get their flight engines this summer or not. Um, but that, but I think that's sort of like a, also like we're buying Atlas Vs to sort of to sort of pay back that. And finally, you know, ULA has as as I think you you rightly said, Anthony. ULA has a bunch of Atlas Vs, commercial Atlas Vs left to sell, and, and who's going to buy them? aside from Boeing for the Starliner spacecraft. I don't know. Yeah, and and so you told me they had 16 launches left of engines, and then I... I, I think 16 to 20 No, your 16 was right, because then I sourced the math, uh, and I, I tweeted the math somewhere, but it, it worked out that there are 16 before this announcement, mm. as of yet, unaccounted for Atlas V's to be flown, or Atlas V's worth of engines to be flown. They had 15 scheduled. They had 16 engines beyond that in their stockpile. So six of those are Starliner, seven. Oh, well, it's seven because you've got OFT two. I think the I think my math included three Starliner missions already accounted for, and that fifteen yet to fly. Okay, and then you've got so they've nine. got like yes yeah, six or seven depending on what they used for testing. So they they have a bunch left, and yeah, if if they're counting on Starliner eventually switching to Vulcan, if and when it hits its sixth flight. Is it going to switch to Vulcan? I don't know what it's going to do. Is it going to fly to space soon? I don't know. It's got. It's going to be I, a while. I, they, Tori Bruno. The only data point we have on that is Bruno said we would we would human rate Vulcan at the request of our customer, which said to me the customer hadn't requested it yet. Well, I think they've got some family issues to sort out. Is what I am hearing. They have some family that. issues to sort out. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. The uh aspect here of of Blue Origin having a really shitty week I would like to unpack for a couple of minutes we have left. Mm. What what we <laughs> It's been a weird couple years man for Blue Origin because um if you look back to the early commercial crew days they were involved in some of the early commercial crew dev rounds. Um yep. and then through today where they've had swing and a miss on the human landing system with NASA, the Space Force contract uh with New Glenn and uh, you could probably throw a couple other programs in there as well. It feels like they always latch on to a big initiative late 
miss on the landing and then go, mm, okay, we'll try a different thing. Now we'll try, we're going to go all in on the lander system because we missed on the new Glenn thing or we missed on, you know, actually being expeditious with our flights to space. It feels like they keep moving the ball a little bit because they keep missing on some of these programs. The only theory I have left is that they could go all in on commercial stations. And I've the one oddball theory that I don't think is accurate, but I would lend credence to because whatever Blue Origin is doing today is not working. So maybe they need to think of a new model. There's a company named Axiom Space who has access mm. to an ISS port and needs a shit ton of cash. And they Blue Origin is interested in and commercial it, stations. And it's got a it just added added a certain Rob Meyerson to its board. Oh, it certainly did. I didn't even think about that. Although I don't know what that how he left Blue Origin. He left on pretty good terms. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, I was just going to say, well, first of all, what I would say is the last thing, that I, in my mind, the last thing Blue Origin needs right now is yet another big program. Because first, you've got to start executing on your existing programs. You've got to get the BE4 engine production up and running. You've got to get humans on New Shepard and and you know sell that program. And that's huge. I mean, that, that's a big, big ask. You've got to get... Um, New Glenn up and flying, which is is years away and it's extremely difficult. And if they just have some mock-up tanks or whatever they're showing us in those videos, they are a long way away from flight. And then you've got to figure out what you're doing with the human landing system and the Blue Moon Lander and the BE-7 engine. So to look at kind of their the, their level of execution over the last five years to add another program to that and expect them to sort of jump in and, and be wizards... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's where you know acquiring Axiom, you know, would make some sense. Um, that would be a lot of money, and uh, and and I don't know. It's it's it would be interesting, interesting to see. Um, they don't seem very uh, not, internally committed to any particular goal. So, a couple. I would say a couple things about that. First of all, let's go back to 2015, December 2015. The future sure seems bright for Blue Origin because they just put up. New Shepard landed it. SpaceX flies and Bezos says, welcome to the club, right? Um, at that time, it looked like we were starting to see this incredible race um, between these two billionaires. Since then, let's talk about what has happened, okay? Um, Blue Origin has launched New Shepard about a dozen more times. Okay. That's what they've actually done in space. SpaceX has launched about 95 rockets, I think, since then. Um, they have reflown rocket, a rocket nine times. They've developed Falcon Heavy. They've gotten, um, they, they've, they've launched, I mean, they've launched what, 1,200 satellites? I think it's like 1,300 almost 1,400. Orbit. Yeah. Um, SpaceX has launched more cars into space than, than Blue Origin has launched satellites. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've done all this work on Starship and, and just look at the contracts they've gotten. They've got second round of cargo. Um, they've gotten a gateway launch contract. They've gotten gateway supply. They've gotten, um, uh, HLS. Um, every NASA science mission that has been bid for the last two or three years. Every NASA science. Oh, oh yeah. And by the way, Blue Origin didn't get the, the LSS, the, the, the national security space launch contract phase two um they got shut out of that by by so new origin blue origin effectively has done almost nothing in space 
compared to what SpaceX has done over the last five years. I mean, it is not meaning to throw shade on Blue Origin at all. It's just like you cannot compare the two because there's no comparison. Um, I, I I know that Bezos is very jealous of the contracts that SpaceX has gotten, but SpaceX has earned those contracts through execution. Um, one of the problems that they've had is that they they underwent a pretty radical transition when you know in the early 2010s when Bezos decided he was ready to get serious about space and not sort of have this kind of development shop, but actually or sort of you know think tank, but really get going. Um, and you know that ultimately led to Meyerson leaving the company, and, and Bob Smith came in I think in 2017, um, but. They've really lost their way. They've lost kind of the founder's mentality that Bezos gave them, I think. Um, and, and they're just really trying to do all these things, and they don't seem to be doing anything really well, although I'm, I'm hopeful that New Shepard is going to get flying pretty, on a pretty good cadence. I mean, it looks like they're, they're close on that. But, but man, I mean, they, they have had not just a bad week. They've had a pretty bad five years. To me, the the issue feels similar to like the the NASA mission to Mars for twenty years, where it was such a long term goal with such ill defined short term goals that the progress was immeasurable. And if Blue Origin was more focused on some short term goals, that they would be more effective. But instead, the only vision that we know from them is millions of people living working in space, which is forever away. And the path yeah. from here to there. They they leave murky, which lets them kind of flap in the drift a little bit. Well, that's one of the things that's too is disappointing. It, it it seems to me, based upon all evidence available, that that Jeff Bezos's plan for a lunar lander was to to provide the engine, the BE seven engine, which seems like a great engine. But you know, if, if that's the entirety of your contribution, that that's not going to get you anywhere close to the moon. Um, so, you know, I say, say what you will about SpaceX and their crazy plans to settle Mars. There's at least a transportation system that they're building that accomplishes that, um, you know, blue, you know, new Glenn gets an uncrewed, you know, a blue moon lander to the moon, but, but doesn't get us close to orbital habitats. Um, so it's, it's, I've been disappointed certainly by the by blue origin and you know I look at I look at what they've done and I think well how the hell was Bezos so successful at Amazon because his other company over here is really struggling I disappointed is the only word I could use as well cuz I I saw that you know there's a lot of things that SpaceX does that are amazing achievements on their own and the effects they have on in the industry are great but they are not as great as they could be if there was a second competitor putting pressure on them you know Cutting, cutting a launch cost in half is cool, but SpaceX isn't going to drop a zero until they need to. So that's right. You know, I mean, imagine, yeah, imagine if New Glenn was flying now, like it was supposed to be flying in 2020, and and sort of you started to see a price race um, for these commercial satellites and for NASA launch contracts. And I mean, the beneficiary, the big beneficiary, of the last five years has not been SpaceX; it's been United Launch Alliance. Because all of a sudden, you know, they 
every year that Blue Origin fails to fly New Glenn or really deliver on its promise is another year that ULA sort of looks pretty good and remains viable in the in a sort of a country where you need two big launch systems. This was an excellent spot to end, I feel like. Uh, can you tell everyone about your book? I don't think you've talked about your book on this podcast. Yeah, so um, uh, about six weeks ago, I, uh, William Morrow published uh, Liftoff, which is the book about um, SpaceX's origins. And uh, yeah, and it's it's really good. Like it's 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 fun, and uh, it, I talked to everybody who was involved, Elon, but but you know, just as importantly, all the early vice presidents and the people who worked for them to really get a sort of a holistic picture of what they did, how they did it, and why it really mattered with the Falcon 1 rocket. It's really, really good, and everybody needs to read it. And uh, there's a stack of books on Eric's shelf behind them, so maybe if you ask <laughs> nice, I'll send you one. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those are props, man. Come on. Um, but it was, it, was, it was just a real privilege to, to tell that story because I don't think most people in space realize how close they came to failure and like how gritty and sort of to some extent slapdash sort of their efforts were to make it to space. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a fascinating origin story. And it's not so much about Elon Musk. It's really about the company and the people who, who work there. Well, I hope when you recover from the burnout of writing that, you're getting working on the Falcon 9 version and uh, you can work <laughs> your way through the history. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they're they're still making history. I, I do think that that they reached a nice inflection point this week with the Crew Two launch on a on a reused rocket. I think that's kind of a nice bookend of their second phase of of maturity, which is really mastering reuse. Well, then we look forward to the book number two from Eric Berger. Thank mm. you so much. Uh, Twitter is at Sci Space and Ars Technica, or if you're a NASA uh, press person, ARS Technica. Is the, <laughs> the way that you say it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks again to Eric for coming on the show. I told you all it was a good conversation. I always love talking to Eric about this kind of stuff. And uh, this conversation was no, no uh, exception to that rule. It's always a fun time to have him on. So I'm sure he'll be back in the future. Uh, if you liked him appearing on the show, head over to Twitter and hit him up at Space. Let him know that you liked him coming on the show again. He's a Miko favorite for sure, so I'm sure there'll be a lot of you hitting him up there. Um, but until next time, thank you all so much for the support. Once again, at manageandcutoff.com slash support. Any questions or thoughts, email me, anthony at manageandcutoff.com, or hit me up on Twitter at WeHaveMiko. And until next time, I'll talk to you soon.